0: Episode 124, A Roman Story Alexander, brother of Leo VI, became senior Roman emperor on the 11th of May, 912 AD. He was 41 years old and had waited all his life in the shadows of the palace. Now, it was his time. Thirteen months later, he was dead. What followed was a six-year game of musical chairs to establish who the new Vasilevs would be. The shifts in alliance and backroom deals which follow are Byzantine in their detail. They are a fine example of how that term gained its modern meaning. So please stand up. When the music starts, walk slowly, to your left in a circle and when the music stops well you know what to do alexander was the youngest son of basil the macedonian there was no question about his paternity sadly though as the junior brother he spent his life kept away from any semblance of power or authority for 30 years he was hailed as emperor but the words Had a hollow ring. His short time on the throne means we know very little about him, and various slanders against his character have no counterpoint. We are forced to provide our own. We're told that he overindulged in life's pleasures, but for a man forced to live in luxury with no formal political role, this isn't a huge surprise. He's accused of sacking all of Leo's fine ministers and replacing them with unworthy men. Again, it's entirely understandable that Alexander would want to surround himself with those loyal to him, and their worthiness is hard to judge given the brevity of their time in office. We're also told that he dabbled in magic or pagan activities. This could be a simple slur, Or it could be that the emperor was seeking a cure for the illness which a few months later would finally kill him. Based on the wording of the chronicles, we suspect it may have been cancer. Historians have speculated on why Leo allowed his brother to take over, particularly when he was leaving, in Alexander's care, his vulnerable young son, Constantine VII. We can only guess, but Leo did put his faith in his sibling, and in turn, Alexander did no harm to young Constantine. Whether through genuine affection or the needs of politics, good on both of them. Rather undermining the familial warmth we were just basking in, Alexander's first act was to recall the former patriarch, Nicholas Mysticus. Nicholas was the man who had refused to accept Leo's fourth marriage, and therefore by extension called young Constantine's legitimacy into question. There were many within the church who supported Nicholas, but this was interpreted as a move against those who were too close to Leo's regime. For example, Nicholas's return meant that the sitting patriarch had to be removed, and the decisions he'd made on that seat were void, up to and including the concessions granted to the Empress Zoe. She, in turn, was removed from the palace. The elderly patriarch Euthymius had been very close to the imperial couple, and there was much bitterness amongst his clergy about this shabby treatment, while Zoe left behind many who would feel her loss, especially poor six-year-old Constantine, who went from room to room, crying out for his mother. Finally, the admiral of the home fleet, Himerios, a close relative of the Empress, was also arrested and forced into a monastery. His harsh treatment was another mark against Alexander. The board, clear of rivals... Alexander set about making a name for himself. Like many foolish emperors before him, he took the first opportunity that presented itself to declare war. Envoys from the Bulgarians arrived, ready to collect their annual tribute. The Vasilevs haughtily refused to pay, and both sides knew that when spring came, there would be fighting to be done. But as the cold weather began to dissipate, so did Alexander's health. In early June, the music stopped. The emperor collapsed in public and was rushed back to his bed. It was Friday the 4th of June, and the capital was buzzing with activity. Zoe moved first, forcing her way back into the palace to be near the action. Alarmed at this, Patriarch Nicholas decided to take action himself. He did not trust the Empress and wondered if he could find a new male regent to take over if Alexander perished. As you know, the Patriarch had been on good terms with Andronicus Ducas, the former domestic of the Scoli, who had fled to Baghdad. Right now, outside the land walls, gathering men for the forthcoming campaign, was Constantine Ducas. Constantine had followed in his father's footsteps to be the empire's leading general and was definitely interested to receive a note suggesting that a vacancy might be opening at the very top. On Saturday the 5th, much to everyone's surprise, Alexander regained enough composure to announce his own succession plans he set up a council of seven regents to run the government until Constantine Seventh came of age. The list of names did not include Zoe and was to be led by the patriarch, Nicholas Mysticus. Before this information could really sink in, the emperor died on Sunday, the 6th of June, 913. Nicholas was now, unexpectedly, head of the Roman government. The 61-year-old had worked in high places in Constantinople for most of his life. He was energetic, capable, and ambitious, but there was an obvious contradiction in his appointment. He had essentially called into question the legitimacy of the child who he was now sworn to protect. More pressing still was that he'd just invited Constantine Ducas to come and fill the role which he now occupied. What was Nicholas now thinking? Perhaps he still felt the general would make a better head of state than he would. An alliance between them might be best for the empire, particularly with Simeon already on the march towards Thrace. But then again, power is alluring. Was there any need to share it with the general? And what if Ducas could not be trusted? What if he decided to do away with the young emperor and begin his own dynasty? Could the patriarch continue to serve as head of the church with blood on his hands? A week later, that question was answered. Constantine Ducas entered the city with his retainers and at night they moved on the palace. As they forced their way through the Chalk gate, though, they were met by the imperial bodyguard. The palace regiments were still made up of men appointed by Leo. They were loyal to his son and would not throw in their lot with the general. They knew that Ducas was coming and fell on him and his men. Constantine and his son were killed and the rest driven off. We have no idea if the Patriarch tipped off the guard. It's entirely possible that the mere sight of Ducas's men in the city prompted a tightening of security. And certainly, many suspected the opposite, that Nicholas had wanted the general to succeed. To distance himself from that suspicion, Mysticus ordered the Ducai supporters rounded up and publicly punished. Some were executed, others tonsured or exiled. The sight of his All-Holiness overseeing executions did not sit well with the public. Nicholas could ill afford another hostile constituency, given he'd already alienated groups in the palace, the church, and the army. And the latter was now an urgent issue. When they learnt of the fate of their commander, several units packed up their gear and crossed back to Anatolia. The trickle soon became a stream. The army melted away just as news hit the city that Simeon's full Bulgarian force was marching on the capital. The patriarch's time in the game was running out. We'll have a lot more to say about Simeon of Bulgaria next week. For now, though, all you need to know is that he was in a very strong negotiating position. He'd faced no opposition on his way to the capital, and could now camp unmolested outside the land walls. Despite the threatening posture of this standoff, the tone of negotiations had changed from a century ago. Simeon was a Christian monarch who spoke Greek. He and Nicholas had exchanged letters before, and the Bulgarians had a perfectly legitimate reason for being there. They were owed money under a lawful treaty whose terms they had not broken. The discussions which followed were somewhat friendly. Simeon's sons actually entered the city to attend banquets, and Nicholas came out to talk face to face. When he entered Simeon's tent, the Bulgarian got down on his knees to greet his spiritual father. What else happened in that tent is a matter of some controversy. Simeon got his tribute payments and came away with an imperial marriage. His daughter was now betrothed to young Constantine VII. He also seems to have been awarded some kind of title. More on that next time. Simeon marched home satisfied. Nicholas returned to the capital wary and was soon hit with the full backlash of public disgust. Their young prince to marry a nasty barbarian without even a fight? The title too was a problem. Discontent rumbled on until the new year, With rumours that Zoe's allies were going to restore her, the Patriarch forced her into a convent, but he'd overreached himself. Several members of the council acted with the conspirators, restored Zoe to the palace, backed by the guards, and the Patriarch was escorted out of the building. Zoe, with the coal-black eyes, was in theory the ideal choice for the role. Not only did she have experience in government, but she was from a wealthy, Constantinopolitan family. She had connections across the city, and of course, she was the mother of the nearly nine-year-old emperor. Naturally, she wanted the patriarch removed from office, but when she offered the aged Euthymius the chance to return, he declined. Not wanting to further divide the church, Zoe left the Patriarch in place, but given his efforts to disinherit her, she needed to demonstrate who was now boss. Soon after taking over the Regency Council, she sent armed men into the Patriarchal Palace to threaten him. Nicholas remained under house arrest for three weeks while she laid out the terms under which he might retain his position. This amounted to only entering the Palace when invited, and recognising the empress as such in church. He agreed to both, and was probably grateful to have suffered no further indignities. Up in Preslav, Simeon was not happy to hear of the regime change, and angry when he learnt that Zoe would not honour the marriage arrangements. He began to make raids along the border to register his displeasure. The empress managed to ignore him that summer, and the following year even authorised a large campaign in the east. The king of Armenia, Sumbat, had been imprisoned by the Arab governor of neighbouring Azerbaijan. Imperial policy for the last few decades had been to woo the Armenian nobility to the Roman side. So Zoe agreed to allow the army to march into the mountains. This was an impressive trek and involved several battles with local Arab forces, but the Byzantines succeeded in restoring some but son Ashot II to the throne. It was a rugged display of power, but it would be well over a decade before it could be followed up. The next year there were raids in east and west. The Arabs of Melitene and Tarsus sought revenge, Simeon wanted to restart the peace process. To raise the pressure on Zoe, he raided south to the walls of Thessalonica and then west to Dyrrhachium. The Empress was not going to negotiate, though. She sent word to Baghdad, asking for a truce with its satellites, and once that was secured, she could transfer the army west for an attack on Bulgaria. 917 dawns with a very familiar feeling for listeners of the history of Byzantium. 106 years earlier, Nicephorus rode north, hoping to crush the Bulgars for good, only to suffer a calamitous defeat. Now, Zoe's new domestic, Leo Phocas, was given similar orders. He was to lead a very large Roman force to the border to confront Simeon. Meanwhile, the new admiral of the fleet, Romanus LeCapinos, was to sail north and pick up the Pechenegs. Yes, throughout the spring, the Stratichos of Cherson, John, had negotiated with the steppe nomads, handing over piles of gifts to convince them to raid Bulgaria. They'd agreed, but would need to be ferried across the Danube. Once again, though, the best-laid plans failed, and Simeon would emerge victorious. We don't know what really went wrong along the Danube. The official reports tell us that John and Romanus quarreled over who would command the fleet, which sounds extremely petty. One wonders if Simeon had managed to pay off the nomads, But whether they got tired of waiting or received a better offer, the Pechenegs abandoned their camp and went raiding elsewhere. The Byzantine army, camped at Anchialus, was now on its own. In itself, that shouldn't have been a crisis. They were numerically strong, and Leo Phocas, son of Nicephorus and uncle to the future emperor, was an experienced commander. But again... For reasons we aren't sure of, Simeon utterly trounced them. We are given an explanation, but it sounds flimsy. The story goes that the two sides began a battle near the river Achillus, and that things were going the Roman way until Leo decided to dismount and get some water from the river. When he did, his horse bolted and the sight of the commander's riderless steed, sprinting away, caused a panic. Simeon, seeing the Roman line wavering, ordered a counter-attack, and as so often happens when the steppe riders charge at a line of infantry, the soldiers lost their nerve and broke. Though not quite a replay of Pliska, the ensuing rout did see heavy Roman casualties, As men fled south, the Bulgarians rode in pursuit, cutting them down as they went. Sixty years later, another of our chroniclers says that bones still littered the river valley. Historian John Halden speculates that the story about Leo is probably a later fiction, but there may be truth in the moral of the story. Ever since the Battle of Yarmouk, Roman armies have had fragile self-confidence. Victories have relied on favourable conditions and excellent leadership. Defeats have often come from a loss of nerve and needless flight. Though the Battle of achilleus joins an ignominious collection from the past three centuries, this was to be the last defeat of its kind for a long while. Not that that was any consolation to Leo Phocas, who just managed to escape with his life. He gathered what men he could and made another stand a few miles from the Theodosian land walls, but Simeon crushed him again. The Romans fled into the city and Simeon took up his now familiar campsite. Zoe still refused to honour the engagement of her son. And fortunately, trouble in Serbia caused Simeon to leave before doing any further damage. Uh, to be fair to the Empress, she had helped foster dissent in the Western Balkans, as we will discuss next episode, but it would not save her. If Nicholas had been undermined by the peace he'd agreed to, Zoe was completely discredited by military defeat. Men began to whisper conspiracy again. Constantine was still only 13 years old. Even when he did take over, he was unlikely to provide the leadership the empire needed. As Constantinople greeted the New Year 919, the palace was tense with intrigue. Zoe no longer had the authority she needed to command the situation. Understandably, she wanted to punish the admiral, Romanus Lecapinos, for his failure on the Danube, but other council members did not want to alienate his support and blocked her. She probably wanted to replace Leo Phocas, who was after all responsible for the disaster at Achillus, but the Phocas clan were powerful magnates, and many of the veterans now camped across the Bosphorus were loyal to them. Focus was gathering fresh recruits at his camp, ready for another campaign, a threatening sight to those in the palace who sensed that change was coming one way or another. Meanwhile, the Admiral Romanus decided to take the navy out for a sail around the harbour, reminding everyone that he now controlled access to the capital. the palace gossips soon reported that the most likely solution to the crisis was the entry into the palace of Leo Focus. The domestic had an important ally in the Grand Chamberlain, a eunuch called Constantine. Uh, We could really use some different names in this scenario. This Constantine was an ally of Zoe's, but was also Focus's brother-in-law. As the general was a widower it's possible that Zoe would consider marrying him. Or perhaps the eunuch would betray his mistress to allow Leo full control of the government. If this came true, the question repeated itself. How would the Phokas clan view the almost-of-age Constantine VII? Would they be tempted to kill him and start a new dynasty? Already, the urban aristocracy were wary of the landed magnates. Their control of the field armies made them very powerful, and many in Constantinople were keen to bolster the existing dynasty if possible. The man who acted first was Theodore, the tutor to young Constantine. Fearing that focus was days away from being elevated, he wrote to the Admiral Romanus, asking for his protection. Romanus LeCapinos was himself an Easterner, an Armenian of humble origins. His obscurity was an asset in this situation. He clearly wasn't a wealthy magnate, and his men, the sailors of the fleet, mostly lived at the capital, sharing the sentiments of their fellow city-dwellers. When the chamberlain Constantine discovered the correspondence, he was quick to put a stop to it. He gave orders that Le Capinos should take the navy away from the metropolis on some spurious mission. The admiral played the situation well. He gave no hint of dissension and got his men packing up their gear, loading the boats with supplies, and then he invited the eunuch to come and inspect the preparations. As soon as the chamberlain appeared on the docks, he was seized and imprisoned on the admiral's ship. Zoe and the rest of the council were deeply alarmed. But when they sent officials to demand his return, people on the streets threw stones at them. The public had no faith in the Empress anymore, and Romanus made no other move he announced that he saw himself simply as arbitrator in this dispute. Leo Phocas was suspicious, but began to correspond with the admiral. Zoe had clearly lost control of the situation, and Theodore convinced his pupil to remove his mother from the council. And now it was she who cried out not to be taken away. Young Constantine kept her with him in the palace, but she had no part in government any more. The council needed a new leader, and so back came the patriarch Nicholas Mysticus. He was still unpopular, but to satisfy part of the public mood, he relieved Leophocus of his command. However, the general negotiated to have his subordinates maintain control of the army and he physically remained in Chrysopolis just across the waters. Still afraid that somehow Phocas would reach the palace, Theodore, the tutor, wrote again to the admiral Romanus and invited him to take charge. In late March, Lekapinos sailed to the palace harbour and was appointed commander of the imperial bodyguard. With the navy at his back, Romanus was now effectively in control of the regency council. Several palace officials fled at the news, though not the patriarch. Romanus assured Nicholas that he bore him no ill will and would appreciate his support. It was the first of many smooth manoeuvres which saw the admiral extend his control over the whole government. He released the eunuch Constantine from his ship and sent him off into comfortable exile. A month later, the outside world finally realized what was happening up in the palace, because in April it was announced that young Emperor Constantine was again engaged to be married, this time to the admiral's daughter, Helena. Upon hearing this, Leofocus went into revolt. But he could no longer command the same loyalty from his men. Defeat had tarnished him, and everyone knew that future pay would come from the palace. Romanus played on this, and on the popularity of young Constantine. He had letters written in the emperor's name, making it clear that Leo was acting illegally and with selfish motives. This message was copied and given to various agents, including priests and prostitutes, to spread around the army camp. Slowly men began to desert. Focus watched with alarm as his camp thinned out each morning. Eventually, realizing what would come next, he bolted and rode east but he hadn't made it far when he was captured and brought to the capital in chains. Along the way, his captors put his eyes out. Upon seeing him, Romanus, who was showing great aptitude for politics, was visibly upset and denounced the blinding as not what he'd wanted. Though it's obviously possible he'd secretly ordered it. Moving swiftly now, to remove any further resistance, Le Capinos punished the remaining partisans of Leo, then accused Zoe of trying to poison him. It wasn't too hard to imagine that the Empress was involved in a conspiracy, and so off she went back to her convent, never to return. Finally, Constantine's tutor Theodore was targeted accused of plotting, and exiled. There was now no one standing between Romanus and poor 15-year-old Constantine. Early in the autumn, Romanus had his charge appoint him Caesar, and then at Christmas, 919, he was finally crowned emperor. To the surprise of some, nothing bad did happen to Constantine the Seventh. Romanus had done such a good job of isolating him that the junior emperor remained just that. As historian Romilly Jenkins put it, Constantine was lucky. He was neither murdered nor mutilated, only married. Next time, we will properly introduce the new emperor, Romanus le Capinos discuss the fate of Constantine Seventh, and deal with the ongoing war with Bulgaria. But before I go, we should just take another look at this strange seven-year period. As I mentioned at the start, this sort of interregnum is what leads to the modern impression of Byzantium. First a bishop rules, then the empress backed by eunuchs, one general is killed in the palace, another is blinded, and in the end the emperor who does emerge... Does so through shady backroom deals. But we should remember that this situation is not a Byzantine contrivance. The absence of a smooth institutional method of succession was a hangover from Rome's republican past. If the system was based strictly on bloodlines, then there would be no room for outsiders to intrude. But the Romans had maintained a sense that the imperial office was just that an office whose holder could emerge through a number of mechanisms. In the Roman past, this was usually decided on the battlefield. It was only the unique geography of Constantinople that allowed women, priests and eunuchs to have such influential roles. So though this messy plotline is, of course, a Byzantine story, we know where its true origins lie. There is also one footnote to this story concerning the Emperor Alexander. Strangely, for such a brief reign, we have a surviving portrait of him. A mosaic still visible today in the Hagia Sophia and you can see it at the website or on social media. It shows the Vasilevs in processional array and we assume that he commissioned it himself.